0: Do you ever feel like um, what you have to offer is so menial, why even bother? I'll give you a few examples. You know, we had this flood in eastern Kentucky not too many months ago, millions and millions of dollars in damage, and you think your $100 makes such a small difference, why bother? Or you have a fleeting thought to email your congressperson, about school choice or abortion or immigration, whatever your topic is, do you think your small voice would make so little difference? Why even bother? Or maybe your work environment is pretty negative. Your, you and your coworkers are overworked and you're mismanaged, and all of you are underappreciated. But it would make so little difference to talk about it. Why bother? Or you're a parent who doesn't agree with a school board decision. You'd like to tell somebody what you think. But again, you know, it, you're just one little voice. Makes so little difference. Why bother? There's never a wrong time to do the right thing. I tried to find who said that, and there are about four different people that that quote is, uh, is latched onto. But there's never a wrong time to do the right thing. We're going to look at Daniel uh, in the Old Testament this morning, and Daniel may be the poster child for doing the right thing when it seldom seemed to make a positive difference, at least in his lifetime. He's known for making good decisions, right decisions, wise decisions, and even very difficult decisions, even while he was a victim of circumstances beyond his control. So here's a little background for the message today. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and he conquers Daniel's people. And he marches them up to Babylon. Now, in this exercise of power, Daniel loses his home, he loses his freedom, he loses his culture, his friendships, his status. He has to learn to speak a foreign language, and he lives, in a di- and lives and dies in a place he never wanted to be. And in all that, he also loses his name. Daniel's name means the Lord will judge. The Babylonian government changes his name to Belteshazzar. Daniel is not even in charge of his identity. No one would blame Daniel for focusing on all the things that he couldn't control. He could complain about Nebuchadnezzar's leadership. He could blame the exile to Babylon for his unhappiness. He could feel sorry for himself. But we don't see him going down any of those roads. In the beginning of Daniel's story, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians control everything. They resolve to conquer Israel, and that's what they do. They resolve to loot the temple treasury, and that's what they do. They resolve to place Israel's most promising leaders into their own training academy, and then that's what they do. But chapter 1, verse 8 says this. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel resolves not to, fight to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He resolves to honor God, and then he does that. Daniel is conscripted uh, for Nebuchadnezzar's training academy. He takes some time at the beginning to determine how to best handle this situation in which he finds himself. He does a bit of self-examination, determining uh, what he values. And after a little time passes to see how the school operates, Daniel goes to the dean to talk about the cafeteria food. And though we're not given the details, there's something about the menu which Daniel believes isn't appropriate for him to eat. And again, we're, we don't know... The specifics about that. The narrator is less interested in the menu options, and more interested in the fact that Daniel resolves to take action based on his convictions. But listen, listen to this thought from uh, from John Ortberg, which I picked up that fits in here. He writes this: When you are floating in a sea of hopelessness, you must si- find some concrete way to express your freely embraced deepest commitment. Daniel is on track with exerting his identity as one of God's chosen. And initially, he chooses to do this through a request for a different diet. The dean of the school is not eager to say yes to Daniel. He's concerned that Daniel's fitness level and his appearance will not be at uh, peak levels. And he's afraid that if that happens, then the king might take aim at him since he's the one in charge. So Daniel proposes a clever experiment. He says to the dean, Let me try the Jerusalem diet for 10 days and see how it goes. If we aren't as healthy as the others, uh, then I'll eat whatever you give me. Verse 15, at the end of 10 days, they, that is the the Hebrew boys, looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So Daniel's experiment was so successful that the dean leaves the old food on the back step and he starts feeding the Hebrew boys. and, And it's not real clear, but he may start feeding everyone in the academy the Jerusalem diet. And Daniel's stock skyrockets. He goes straight to the head of the class. Verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, that's the Hebrew boys, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. So we read that Daniel remained in Babylon until, king, until the reign of King Cyrus. And I want you to notice that word, Remained. There's, some, there's something to that. He was present. Daniel was available. He was in the palace doing what he needed to do, being respectful, being resourceful, being loyal. And while remaining, he was also continually resolved to honor God. So I'd like to skip ahead to chapter 6 in Daniel's story. According to one scholar, Daniel is around 90 years old now. And there's a new king on the throne. His name is Darius, and Darius is in the Daniel is in Daniel's fan club. He recognizes his value and his wisdom. And Daniel excels in his role in the Babylonian government. In fact, by chapter 6, he's chosen to be one of three administrators th- governors over the entire empire, similar to being on perhaps the presidential cabinet. Chapter 6 verse 3. <coughs> Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. So Daniel's career status is on the rise, and as some of you know personally, the higher you climb, the more of a target you become. The higher you climb, the more potential for jealousy and envy creeps in. Others think it should be them at the top of the ladder instead of you. That's what happens. Verse 4, At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. These dudes are rolling over rocks. They're rummaging through Daniel's closet. They're eavesdropping on his conversation wiretapping his phone line. They are sneaking around looking for something negative, something indicting, but they find nothing. Nothing hidden, no secrets, no (laughs) cover-ups. All they find is trustworthiness. Finally, verse 5, the men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Daniel is too honest to accuse His record is impeccable. These guys do a deep dive into Daniel's past, and we don't know if the search was clandestine in nature or if it was out in the open, but at no point along this witch hunt does Daniel seem to be threatened. There's no nervousness. There's no anxiety. He's not pacing around hoping they don't find his hidden wall safe. He doesn't seem to care who they talk to or what documents they might subpoena. Daniel has absolutely nothing to hide. I don't know if anyone in here aspires for political office. The scrutiny you'd be subjected to seems overwhelming. People who don't want you elected will go back 20, 30, 40 years and dig through your middle school yearbook. And they'll uncover a video of you from high school from 35 years ago and use it against you. You talk about needing to be thick-skinned. Political candidates need Iron Man armor on these days. The level of scrutiny into Daniel's life is ridiculous. It's crazy. Who could possibly come out of this with a clean slate? Well, Daniel does. And there's one other dude who did also. His name was Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, writing about Jesus, we read these words. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. As hard as the Jewish rulers tried, they couldn't find anything to stick on Jesus. So they chose to lie, incite, and accuse. And their plan worked, precisely as God knew it would. Just like Daniel, Jesus' enemies found a way, and it had something to do with his God. And in the end, he received a death sentence. In Daniel's case, he is trapped through his religious convictions, he is trapped because his life's goal is to honor God. The jealous administrators appeal to King Darius' pride. They, they know their king. They know he loves the acclaim. So they lay out a plan. And it's pretty simple and very conniving. They say to King Darius, King Darius, because you're so awesome, we believe you should pass a law that for the next 30 days, nobody prays to any God but you. And if they don't, they'll be thrown into the lion's den. And the king can't refuse such a brilliant idea. I mean, who doesn't love to be exalted? The king has no idea he's just buried Daniel with the stamp of his signet ring. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Daniel doesn't head off to his room to pray out of rebellion. He isn't trying to sneak around to pray unnoticed. He just does what he did yesterday and the day before that. <coughs> and he's been doing, he does what he's been doing for years. Three times every day, he looks out the window toward Jerusalem and he prays thankfully because he thinks, why stop now? I don't want you to miss this. He, he learned about the decree he goes home, he kneels down, and he prays, and the text says, giving thanks to God. He never even hesitates to pray, and he prays thankfully. So I encourage you to read the remainder of chapter 6 in Daniel's story. I expect everyone in this room knows how the saga ends. Uh, we've had Daniel's experience in the den of lions shared with us since our earliest years of Sunday school. This time around, the good guys survive, the bad guys don't, and Daniel goes on to prosper under the king. Under the reign of King Darius and Cyrus, but I'd like to take a left turn here and highlight something about Daniel's life that I've never thought about before. There are two books that have been helpful to me in preparing for this message about Daniel. one that's very helpful is by, by an author named Brian Chappell, uh, and the title is "The Gospel According to Daniel." It's pretty insightful. The other is just a commentary by a guy named Dale Ralph Davis that I've enjoyed. Uh, he, I, I enjoy his writings. But let's t- let's take a look first at Daniel's dedication. We've already seen how Daniel lived a life of integrity. He managed people well, so well that he advanced as the second highest ruler in Babylon. His wisdom stood out. The quality of work that he produced was exceptional. And because of the way he handled himself, he got promoted. But here's a question for you to consider. How can God ask us to work for the good of those who stand in opposition to him? And... What are the limits of such work? Where's the line? Is there a line? And you may find yourself employed by a company with values or practices that do not honor God's word. What are, you, what are you supposed to do with that? Daniel was most certainly in that kind of situation. Your situation may be very complex, or you may be so far down the totem pole that your opinion, your input, it will never be heard by the decision makers. Well, here are a couple of thoughts, however, which aren't so complicated. Into our complex situation of working for the man, regardless of what the man thinks or believes about kingdom values, we are to bring righteousness, grace, ethics, and the compassion of God to every dimension of our job. Those people around us who don't know or who don't follow Jesus, their opportunity to see him, their opportunity to see him is you. They see him by how you handle conflicts. They see him by your attitude on the job every day. They see him by listening to your conversations about your husband, about your wife, about other coworkers, about the boss. They see him by observing your character. How, how do you work when the boss isn't around, when a corner could be cut easily? Daniel has been on a godly path for many years, and sometimes it lands him in very difficult situations. Sometimes it leads to promotions. But at every turn, he has the choice. Follow the ways of God or give up and go a different, easier route. What we see in his biography is a man who remains. He continued to remain in Babylon, in the palace, in the service to the king. He was a man who was always present, always dependable, predictable, faithful, dedicated, Those are the traits Daniel might share with you from his experience of working for a company or an an individual with a disparate worldview. Here's another thought that I had never considered regarding the life of Daniel. Daniel most likely didn't see himself as anyone special. He may have even labeled his life as one which didn't make much of a difference. Daniel lived in Babylon for nearly a century And what did he have to show for it? Everyone he worked beside turned against him. Maybe they were jealous. Seeing a foreigner in a lead governmental position didn't sit well with them. Maybe his integrity, his character made them uncomfortable. Being in his presence made them feel inadequate, inferior. His light exposed their darkness. For whatever reason, when these 123 government leaders got together to undermine Daniel's impending promotion, we do not see a single person speak up for him. No one. It never crossed Darius' mind that this decree would indict Daniel. Daniel was about to be the sole chief of staff for all of Babylon. He has been on this executive team for several years. He's made his way up from the mailroom, in a sense. The citizens of Babylon do not seem to be any closer to being believers in God of Israel, in the God of Israel, when Daniel arrived on the scene as a student of Nebuchadnezzar's training academy. We read of no national repentance, no pockets of faith springing up, no revival. Babylon appears to be unchanged. Unchanged. Under the, king, under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar and then under the reign of King Darius, idol worship ruled the hearts of the citizens of Babylon. So, what is Daniel's reward for years of faithful dedication to the king of Babylon? More importantly, what is the reward from the God of Israel? Brian Chappelle in his book writes this, for all his wisdom, integrity, and faithfulness Daniel is an old man facing the jealousy of peers, the idolatrous arrogance of a king, and a death sentence in a lion's den. And that's that's not the end of this difficult assessment of Daniel's influence. All of this trouble might be worth it if Daniel's own people were inspired by his long-term example of integrity and honest leadership to be more passionate in their loyalty to God. We don't see any sign of that happening either. Not only was Babylon unchanged, Israel seemed to be unchanged too. Daniel's life seemed to have hardly any effect in the spiritual health of his own people. He trusted the Lord. He served long and hard and faithfully. And what did he get for years of dedication to the king and to his God? Jealousy, accusation, and advancing years that made him unable to return to his homeland again. We certainly wouldn't fault Daniel if he asked God, did I do anything worthwhile? Did my life really matter? And maybe you've asked the same question in some of your arid seasons in life. Missionaries can spend years of their lives in forgotten places on this planet, loving people and telling about Jesus, sometimes with very little fruit realized. I mean, even in our church family here, we have a few people who've spent years in places far from home, in a mission field. David and Julie Eberhard, and Jamie and Kristen, Christina Pittman, uh, Hannah and Felipe Vocal, Mark and Debbie Van Dyke. He talk to them about how faithfulness doesn't always lead to dreams being realized. I'm fairly certain each of them can tell you about seasons of despair and despondency because nothing and no one seem to be changing. Many of you have had these same feelings right here at home, where you're... Work seems like a spiritual desert. There's not much life. There's, there's little to drink that satisfies. It's hot. It's arid. You've been faithful to God in your work- workplace. You've loved people. You've been kind and fair. You've pitched in to help others out. Yet you've seen no change. No interest in Jesus expressed. Not a question has come your way. It's so challenging to trust God in this kind of environment, and you wonder if your effort... To be Jesus to others really matters. Trust is so crucial and treasured when you come to realize that God is your audience. Though the people around seemed uninterested and apathetic, God sees who you are and he is honored by your choices. Daniel never saw the fruit of his labor while he was still alive. We trust he sees it now. We trust he sees it in us. In and through the inspiration, his experience and his choices are to you and me. His life inspires and even empowers us to make hard decisions. Decisions with God on one side and a godless culture on the other. When we were little kids, we were enamored with the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's one of our favorites as little kids. Eventually, we see more than a guy who didn't get eaten by lions. We see a God who has the power to shut the lion's mouth. And we see a follower of God, just like we are, stand strong on the Lord and the promises and the commands of God. We're inspired by his choices to live with God as his audience and no one else. And we do this when it matters most, when loneliness and ridicule are inevitable, and then when the results we hope for are unrealized. I see Daniel modeling a couple of behaviors which are good for us to notice and take with us this morning. First, He remained, chapter 1 and verse 8. He remained in Babylon. He didn't run away. He didn't grumble. He didn't blame. He remained. He remained faithfully. He remained steady. He remained focused on God. And two, as was his custom, he prayed every day, three times. And his prayer was a prayer of what? Thankfulness. On days when he was thrown into a fire, he prayed thankfully. On days when everyone around him was out to get him, he prayed thankfully. On days when he was thrown into a lion's pit, he prayed thankfully. On days when he didn't see any impact of his faith on those around him, he prayed thankfully. On days when he didn't see any impact of his faith on his own people, he prayed thankfully. On days when he had to wonder, does my life really matter? He prayed thankfully. So the message from Daniel to us this morning is this. It's real simple. Remain and pray thankfully. That is what God is pointing us to this morning in Daniel's story. We are invited by God and by Daniel in our driest seasons, in our disappointing harvest, to be steadfast, to remain, and to pray thankfully. Let's stand together and sing.